listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, which include the following two topics, God's choice of Israel, and second, God's mercy toward the Gentiles. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about God's choice of Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapters 9 to 11 in St. Paul's letter to the Romans function as a section in and of itself, wherein St. Paul now turns his full attention to God's choice of Israel. And in speaking of this, he has to address the fact that Israel has placed itself outside salvation because of their unbelief in the word incarnate. And because of this, the Gentiles, it is as if the door of God's kingdom has been thrown wide open. And while Israel refuses to come in, they remain outside, the door to the wedding feast being thrown wide open is allowing everybody else to enter in. This would be the Gentiles. So through what's happened with Israel, God has shown mercy toward the Gentiles. Now at the beginning of chapter 9, St. Paul speaks of a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish or agony that he has in his heart. Why is this? It is because his beloved people, his own nation, the Israelites, in their unbelief, have rejected the Christ, the Anointed One, and placed themselves outside salvation. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise, and because they refuse to believe in Christ, they do not receive the promise. So he has this great sorrow, this anguish in his heart that remains with him and that compels him, as we know, to continue to speak or to proclaim the gospel to Israel. This is why he goes into the synagogues in all the towns and cities, even though in most of these places, a great many of the Jews reject the gospel. Now he announces, he reminds all of his listeners of the privilege of Israel from the very beginning, that God had chosen Israel and in choosing them to be his adopted children, his adopted son, that 
The glory was theirs, that God had made his covenants with them. He revealed his promise to Israel. Israel was the recipient of God's priesthood and of temple worship. And in this way, they were the people of true worship. Now, theirs was not the true worship that God would, would ultimately reveal in the person of his son. So that in the New Testament of Christ, we now can worship in spirit and in truth. Nevertheless, Israel, because they received divine revelation, worshiped in a true kind of way, in a way that was true as opposed to the worship or the religion of all the other nations, the pagan nations. So they had the law, they had the patriarchs, but the greatest privilege perhaps of all was the fact that God, in sending his son, would, would have this son be born of the flesh and blood of Israel. The Christ of God is a child in flesh and blood of the people of Israel. And so they had this claim, so to speak, on the Son of God. As we know, Jesus was a Jew. Now, they have placed themselves outside salvation. So St. Paul asks them, in a sense, he, in saying that the promise has not failed, he is posing the question that he knows is on the minds and hearts of his listeners. He does this at various places throughout this section. He will pose a question and he will answer the thought, the thinking that he knows to be in the minds and hearts of those hearing what he has to say. God promised Israel salvation. Israel is now outside salvation. The question is, has God's promise failed? St. Paul says, no, it is not that God's promise has failed. Then he goes on to make two very interesting points. We have to think about them for a minute to understand even how they are connected to what he's talking about. The first point is this. He says, not all born Israelites belong to Israel. He says, not all the descendants of Abraham count as his children. Now, what does he mean by this? First of all, we have to keep in mind that Israel was a sign of the new Israel that God would form in the new covenant, the people of God. And that Paul knows that he, along with all those Jews and Gentiles alike who embrace Christ, they constitute the new people of God, the new Israel, the new kingdom of God. He actually uses the phrase new Israel at the end of his letter to the Galatians, which he has written before he writes this letter to the Romans. Not all born Israelites, then, belong to the new Israel. This is one way that we can understand these words. But he goes on to say that not all the descendants of Abraham count as his children. This is something that scripture refers to in a number of places. We cannot help but recall Jesus' own words to the Jews who are in contention with him who are questioning him, who are expressing their disbelief in him. St. John records this in chapter 8 of his gospel. And Jesus takes them to task on this. And he says, 
If you are Abraham's children, then do as Abraham did. He says, but as it is, you want to kill me. A man who has told you the truth as he learned it from God. He says, that is not what Abraham did. Abraham heard the word of God and believed and lived out what the word told him, revealed to him. He embraced it fully. But the Jews to whom Jesus is speaking, they claim Abraham as their father, but they do not act as Abraham did. That's why Jesus says, why is it that you don't understand what I say? Why do you not understand what I teach? Why do you not understand what I do? He says, because you cannot bear to listen to my words. Whoever comes from God, he says, listens to the word of God. And he says, the reason why you do not listen is that you are not from God. And of course, they rear up and say, how dare you say this? We are children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, Abraham is not your father. St. Paul is alluding to this then when he says, not all the descendants of Abraham count as his children. The descendants of Abraham, as we spoke in a prior lesson, are the children who have faith in the word of God. Now he goes on to make a further point in regard to Rebekah and Isaac. He says even more to the point in verse 10. When Rebekah was pregnant with the twins, he is referring to Esau and Jacob, pregnant by our ancestor Isaac, before her children were born, so in other words, before either of them had done anything good or bad, so that the merit could not be claimed as human merit. He says before either had done anything good or bad, but in order that it should be God's choice which prevailed, not human merit, but God's call, his choice. She was told the elder, the firstborn, shall serve the younger, the secondborn. They were twins. Now, any time that God reveals something which initially appears strange to us, he is doing it to lead us to deeper understanding of the promise. The Jews understood the natural law of primogeniture, which is something that many cultures embrace. It's this idea that the firstborn of many sons of the father has a certain status, a certain privilege, a certain authority of voice, so to speak, in the household of the father, particularly once the father is absent. So that that firstborn is considered a special one among all of the others. Now, the whole idea of firstborn, God had been speaking about this throughout the Old Testament. But he says also that the firstborn, the firstborn is mysteriously firstborn in a way unique to him. Christ is the firstborn, as the Word of God reveals. And yet he comes late, so to speak, in salvation history. Now, God wants his people to understand this. So he says, there are two sons, twins, one and the same. God is speaking one and the same word throughout salvation history. There is the firstborn, and in a sense, this is Israel. This is the Old Testament, the first testament, the first covenant, the first revealed law. 
And God reveals that the elder, the first, will serve the younger who comes after, who comes later. This is Christ. This is the New Testament. Now, this would have been perplexing to them, but in fact, it was fulfilled. And the Father's blessing was bestowed upon not Esau, who came out of the womb first, but upon Jacob, who becomes Israel, the father of the many nations, in the steps, in the footsteps of his father Abraham. So he says, Scripture even says, this is God speaking, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now these might be startling words to us. What was God saying in this? To understand this, we have to keep in mind that it is Jewish tradition. In fact, there is a rhetorical tradition among peoples, all peoples of language. We use language to express, to emphasize. We use certain figures or ways of speaking to make our point. And there is something that we might call a rhetorical hyperbole to stress or emphasize something. Jesus himself, when he is talking to the Jews, tells them that they strain out the gnat but swallow the camel whole. He's using a form of rhetorical hyperbole to make his point very clear. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. He is speaking in an exaggerated way as a figure of speech to make his point abundantly clear. Only a few verses before this, St. Paul, in speaking about this great sorrow, this unremitting agony in his heart, says in verse 3, I could pray that I myself might be accursed and cut off from Christ, if this could benefit the brothers who are my own flesh and blood. We're surprised that he says, it seems that he is saying, I am willing to be cursed myself and cut off from Christ if this could save a few of my beloved ones. Now, St. Paul is not saying that he is willing to be thrown into hell, that he will accept eternal damnation if it will have a chance of saving or helping someone else. This would be contrary to the promise, contrary to Christ. But what he is saying is, I would be willing to be considered accursed to be treated as the cursed one, if it may help you. Christ, the suffering servant, takes this very thing upon himself. The prophet Isaiah speaks of it, that the innocent one, the Son of God, is deemed a criminal. He becomes the accursed one for the sake of those, so that he might save them. When he says, I would be willing to be cut off from Christ, what he is saying is that I would be willing to suffer anything. He has said only a few verses before that it's not possible for anyone to be separated from Christ. Now, there are ways in which the suffering servants of God are separated from the mystical body of Christ by being put in prison, by being sent into exile. John the Evangelist was exiled at the end of his life. There are popes of the church, canonized saints, who were sent into exile because of those who were perpetrators of wickedness. In our own age, in the 20th century, 
bishops, Cardinal Kung of China, under communist China, spent 30 years of his work and life as a bishop of the church in prison with not being able to celebrate the Eucharist, to pray with his bravery, to read scripture. There are others. Cardinal, he was later made cardinal, but then Bishop Nguyen Van Thuan in Vietnam, 13 years in prison, nine of those years in solitary confinement, not able to celebrate the Eucharist, cut off from the mystical body of Christ, so to speak, and yet not cut off in spirit, but he suffered this in order that those whom he loved, the world, might come to salvation. This is the kind of rhetorical hyperbole St. Paul is using. God himself speaks in this way in Scripture. So when God reveals under the Old Testament that I loved Jacob but hated Esau, he is saying something about divine love. When God loves, when he loves with a preferential love, with an infinite love, with a love of predilection, and that is the kind of love that defines God, it is a love so great and so intense that all other love compared to it looks like hate. God hates no one, of course, but he is speaking of his choice in Israel. Now that's a choice that God predestines everyone for, but he wants to emphasize what kind of power is in that choice and love of God. So he said, I loved Jacob. I loved Israel. God loves Israel. We are predestined to be the people of the new Israel. All are predestined to be members of this kingdom. So, we know that Israel now stands outside salvation. What should we say then? St. Paul asked the question that God is unjust, perhaps? Has he done something unjust by not bringing to fulfillment what he promised his own people? He says, let us remember what God showed us in salvation history. How he said to Moses, I will be gracious towards those to whom I want to be gracious. I will take pity on those on whom I wish to take pity. God's mercy is a mysterious thing. Everything that God does, however, is about his saving love. So St. Paul concludes it's not a matter of what any person wants or what any person does, but only a matter of God's showing mercy. Now he gives us two examples to help us understand this. The first is the example of Pharaoh. And St. Paul says, do you remember what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh? Pharaoh was the enemy of God's people and therefore the enemy of God. And he was not only oppressing God's people, he wanted to destroy them. And God then sends these plagues upon him. And in the midst of these, Pharaoh's life is kept intact throughout this. But God tells Moses to tell him, Do you not think that I could have sent a pestilence upon you? I could have taken your life if I wanted to. The very fact that you live in your hatred, in your rebellion, is my mercy towards you. He makes this very clear. 
So St. Paul, in explaining this, quotes the words of God to Moses. I raised you up for this reason, God has Moses tell Pharaoh. And what is that reason? To display my power in you and to have my name talked of throughout the world. When God permits his enemies to carry on their work, it is so that he makes no one his power throughout the world. The more his people are oppressed, the more his faithful remnant proclaims the Lord and makes his name known. This is the nature of persecution in the church. This is the nature of persecution throughout salvation history. So St. Paul says, I suppose you will ask me now, how then can anyone ever be blamed for anything if it is all God's will in the end? And he goes on to give this marvelous example of the potter, an example that God spoke of in the Old Testament as well, through the prophets. We recall when he tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house one day and tells him to watch the potter. He says, there I will speak to you. So while he's down there, he's looking at the potter who has taken clay and is attempting to form a vessel. But the vessel turns out badly. It turns out wrong. So he begins again and he starts forming it in a new way. God then speaks to Jeremiah and says, Go to the house of Israel and say to them, Can I not do to you what this potter does? Now God is speaking to all of us. Can I not do with you what this potter does? Like clay in the potter's hand, so you are in mine. Now, there's a difference, however, between the inanimate clay of the potter and us who are like that, that clay in the potter's hand. We are also clay, which God's hand, the divine potter, is forming into the kind of vessel he has in mind the kind of vessel he envisions, some for a special use, some for an ordinary use, but all according to God's wisdom. But we are not inanimate clay. We have the breath of God in us. We have a living soul, which means that we can respond to the work of the potter's hand upon us, forming our lives. We have freedom. We have free will. Therefore, we can be resistant to the potter's hand in a way that the inanimate clay cannot be. And yet we know that in reality, in that analogy, there are potters who work and the clay just simply doesn't seem to be malleable, formable in their hands. And what happens is that they, they change the shape of the vessel, the purpose of the vessel. And God says that he will do the same. So he continues, speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, Sometimes I announce that I shall break down and destroy a certain kingdom or nation, a person. In other words, the pot I have in mind, that vessel, I shall break down and destroy. But should that nation abandon its wickedness, its refusal to be conformed to my will, then I change my mind about the disaster that I was going to inflict. Conversely, he says, sometimes I announce that I will build up a certain nation or a kingdom. 
But should that nation or kingdom do what displeases me and refuse to listen to my voice, refuse to be molded in the work of my hand, he says, then I will change my mind about the good I was intending to do with that vessel. Now, does God change his mind? No, God can't change his mind. He is the immutable one. But in this mystery, God is speaking to us about how his will works with the will, the free will of man in time and history. That, because we live in time and in place, and because we are imperfect, we ourselves changing, that God can work with all of this to bring his will about. So that God continues the entire time as he's forming us. He continues to bring about the good that he intends. But there at the same time is this mystery of our free will that we can rebel to the very end and refuse. But God, God doesn't change the plan or will he has in mind, but he works with what happens in the vicissitudes of time and place. It's part of the great mystery. We can only grasp it partially in this life. We will grasp it more fully in the next life, but it's a very great mystery. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing the topic, God's Choice of Israel. And now, back to Dr. George. For the remainder of chapter 10, chapter 9, and all of chapter 10, St. Paul refers many times to the sayings of the prophets. He quotes the words of the prophets. Why does he do this? He is saying what, he is reiterating what God himself has made clear in many times and places, that all was known by God, all was foretold by God throughout salvation history. It had been prophesied that in the revelation of salvation of the promise of God himself when he sent his anointed one, that that stone revealed by the divine builder would be rejected by his earthly servants, by the builders of his kingdom on earth. God revealed himself as rock in many places in scripture. The psalmist talks of this, King David, the Lord is the rock of my salvation. This large, strong, powerful, immovable rock, bulwark, fortress. And that God in building his kingdom had chosen a cornerstone, a foundation stone, which would be the stone upon which the entire edifice, his whole kingdom, his holy city, would be built. Now that cornerstone, of course, is Christ. Christ is rock. It's no accident that when he chooses one who will stand in his stead, his vicar, Peter, that he names him rock. 
because he is going to be the first pope. He will be, he is configured in a unique way to Christ the rock of our salvation. But Israel, God foreknew, would stumble over that rock. Israel would reject the very rock of its salvation, something that had always been foretold. And in their rejecting it, God would then show his mercy to the Gentiles, and they would enter into salvation, into the very kingdom that he had always been speaking about to Israel. So Jesus then is that cornerstone. We know when he is presented in the temple as an infant, when Simeon, the prophet Simeon, goes up to Mary and says in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures that he is destined to be the fall and rise of many in Israel, a sign to be opposed, a stone to be rejected. Christ, in teaching his parables, particularly in the presence of the Jews, alludes to this. Remember the parable of the vineyard with the tenants, and the tenants, they're creating their own little kingdom there. The owner of the vineyard is distant. He has entrusted his vineyard to the tenants, who are wicked tenants. And what happens is that when the owner sends his representatives, his servants, to instruct the builders, the workers, the servants in the vineyard, because he wants his plan carried out. It's his vineyard. He knows the fruit that he intends to produce. Jesus says that with each one, they persecute and kill them. Now these would be the prophets. So finally, the, the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my own son. Surely they will listen to my son. And what happens when the son arrives, they discern, they say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and make the inheritance ours. Now, these are Jesus' own words. So he says, do you know what the owner of that vineyard will do to these wicked tenants? He says, I tell you, he will make an end of them, and he will give the vineyard to others. And the Jews who hear this rise up and say, no, God forbid. They hear something huge happening in this. Jesus looked hard at them, St. Luke writes. He looks at them very hard and he said, What does this text in the scriptures mean? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He goes on to say, And anyone who falls upon that stone will be dashed to pieces, and anyone upon whom the stone falls will be crushed. They're infuriated when they hear these words. And St. Luke says that the chief priests and scribes at that very moment wanted to lay their hands on Jesus and deal with him because they knew that the parable was about them. They did not lay their hands on him, though. Why? Because they said they were, St. Luke writes, they were afraid of the people. The people delighted in Jesus. They delighted in the profound wisdom that came forth from his lips, and in all the miracles that he performed. The Gentiles were being prepared to come into the kingdom. They looked at Jesus and thought he was an amazing man. Of course, the Gentiles are eventually convinced, along with many of those in Israel who were delighted by Jesus, they're convinced by the wicked Jews who hate Jesus, so that at the end in the Passion, 
The religious authorities have managed to turn nearly everybody against Jesus so that they could succeed in killing him. Imagine, I mean, the law and the Jerusalem temple were points of opposition. The religious authorities were opposed to Jesus based upon their thinking concerning the law in the Jerusalem temple. But as the church points out to us in the catechism, it was Christ's role in the redemption of sins. Christ reveals himself as the Messiah, as the anointed one of God. He does this in, in mysterious language, especially in the Gospel of John, where he is revealing himself. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. He is revealing that he is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the divine work par excellence in Israel. This is why it is because they are beginning to grasp the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. They're scandalized by this. They're envious of this. They hate the truth that he is calling them to, beginning with repentance of the sin in their hearts. This is why Jesus becomes the true stumbling block for them. They cannot, they will not accept him. When in the Passion, which St. John records, Jesus is before Israel, and they're denouncing him, and Israel feels the, the rioting and the problem has become so great, the dilemma so great, that Caiaphas, who is high priest that year, speaks as high priest. He stands forward and he says, none of you really understand, in other words, what we need to really do in this situation. He says, it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people, should die, in one translation you read, should die instead of the people. He says, rather than that the whole nation should perish, we have to save ourselves. We have to do what's right for us. So let's hand this man over to die. St. John records that he was not speaking in his own person. Now, he was speaking out of the malice of his heart, but Caiaphas could not have comprehended the truth, the fullness of the truth he was actually saying that God allowed him to say in those words, which were true in a way far beyond what any of the Jews could have understood. He was speaking as high priest that year, St. John writes, prophesying that indeed Jesus was going to die for the whole nation, but not only for the whole nation, for the whole people. He would die for all people, for the whole world so that God could gather all the scattered children of the world into one people. So it's prophetic not only about Israel, but it's prophetic also about the Gentiles. So he concludes then this section in speaking about how the stone that was the promise, the fulfillment of the promise, would be rejected by Israel. And all this God allowed, knowing it was going to happen, it had been foretold in the scriptures, foretold by the prophets, just as the fact that God would gather all Gentiles, all peoples, all nations to himself. The word Gentiles that we get in English in the New Testament is rooted in a Hebrew word, goyim, which is translated in the Old Testament as peoples or nations. God said, I will gather the goyim to myself, all peoples, all nations. So speaking of this, at the end of chapter 10, St. Paul is quoting now the prophet Isaiah, God saying, 
I have let myself be found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not looking for me. This is a Gentile's. And in point of fact, God does this with all of us in our lives. We're not looking for God. We're not seeking him. And yet he is looking for us and finding us so that we can find him. He is revealing himself to us so that we will have an encounter with him long before we desire it in our own heart. It's a beautiful thing, an amazing thing. Verse 25 of chapter 9, the prophet Hosea, St. Paul, is quoting, God says, I shall tell those who were not my people. The Jews always called the Gentiles a non-people. It's like they considered them so lowly, so sinful, so wicked, so much a people not of God that they considered them a non-people. God says, I will tell those who are not my people, you are my people. I shall take pity on those on whom I had no pity. And in the very place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be told that you are children of the living God. This is the mystery. This is the mystery of all, not only of the Gentiles, it's the mystery of all. It's what happens with Israel. God showed them mercy in choosing them. They didn't, they didn't merit it. They didn't know God. They knew that they were small, that they were poor. They were a nobody in a certain sense. And so God chooses them and sets them apart. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering God's mercy toward the Gentiles. And now, back to Dr. George. In the last chapter of this section, in chapter 11, St. Paul asks the next question. He says, what am I saying then? Is it possible that God has abandoned his people? That's the question. Because here we are now. We, 2,000 years later, they asked this question 2,000 years ago. Israel's outside salvation, and it doesn't really appear that that's going to change. Has God abandoned his people? He says, of course not. That's not possible. God never abandons his people. And now he talks about this mystery of the faithful remnant. And he refers to the prophet. Elijah, who, in his persecution, because sometimes when nations, when the wicked, persecute God's people, they kill, they kill many. They kill a certain portion of them, they send into exile another portion of them, and that those who remain behind are placed in servitude or slavery. This happened with the Assyrians in Israel. This happened in the 6th century BC when the Babylonians came in and they killed a large part of the people, they exiled another large part of the people, and they left some of the poor and downtrodden in place to serve as slaves for the Babylonians who had conquered them. But God says, he reveals, I always have, because Elijah thinks he's left alone. He says, I'm just here alone, what am I to do, Lord? And he says, no, you're not alone. Now, it's true that those who are left behind may feel alone. But he says, I have set aside in my mercy. In this case, he says 7,000. It's sort of the fullness of number 
to keep the promise alive. They shall continue. They are faithful. He says, I have spared for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal, who have not handed themselves over to another way of life, to a godless way of life, to another way of thinking. He says, in the same way then in our own time, St. Paul is saying, and now these words apply to us, in our own time, there is a remnant. There is always a faithful remnant set aside by grace. We have this going on in the world. It goes on in the church. There is a faithful remnant. St. Paul says, Israel failed to find what it was seeking. Only those who were chosen found it, and the rest had their minds hardened. Here again, that idea of chosen. God, God has chosen. God chooses certain people to whom he shows his, his mercy, his mercy of predilection. But remember, there is a way in which we are all chosen by God in the beginning. The very fact that we're created means we are chosen by God. God chooses us and calls us, but he allows us to go our own way. So in other words, when we harden our hearts against God, God says, so be it. I will let that stand. We cannot even persist in that hardness of heart and go on living, as God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. In your hardness of heart, you wouldn't even be able to go on living unless God allowed you to. That, too, is a form of mercy. Everything is part of the mystery of God and the mystery of his saving work. Now, the conclusion then is, St. Paul says in verse 11, was Israel stumbling to lead to their final downfall? Are they going to be left outside of salvation? We remember how in the exile, the Babylonian exile, for example, it certainly seemed that Israel had been destroyed. Many of the people died. Many, a great many others were sent into exile where they had to live as foreigners in a country that was not their own, a culture that was not their own. And those who stayed behind in the land that did belong to them were made slaves and servants in their own land. So in that sense, they are in exile. Anytime we are in sin, why did the exile happen? Why, why was Israel crushed several times in salvation history? When we disobey God, we become weak. We're morally weak. We're spiritually weak. We're weak because the Holy Spirit doesn't live in us. So what happens is we make ourselves vulnerable to be conquered by the enemies of God, by those who want to kill, destroy, and take for themselves. So what happens is that God permits this, but he allows it only in order to purify the hearts, the minds, the faith of his beloved people. That's why when the church speaks of this matter of exile, she says in the catechism that the exile seems to be a failure of the promises. That's what exile always looks like to us. But in fact, it is the mysterious fidelity of the Savior God, the beginning of a promised restoration. In other words, he is bringing about the restoration, which wasn't going to happen if we were left in our present state. And this restoration will be one according to the Spirit of God not according to man's spirit, sinful spirit, rebellious spirit. 
the people of God had to suffer this purification. Israel right now is in exile. In fact, we could say in a certain sense she is in exile to this present day. But in this exile, it is a time of God's patience, of God's mercy, of God's purification, of God's teaching them, and yes, trying to lead them to salvation. This is why St. Paul speaks of this mysterious envy or jealousy. In the middle section of chapter 11, he says, Israel's failure has brought salvation for the Gentiles in order to stir them to envy. It was a point of envy for Israel. And to this day, Christians, we call ourselves, rightfully so, Judeo-Christians. And there must be Jews who wonder, how, how can you do that? How dare you do that? You're not the chosen people. How dare you say that the promise is yours? It was never given to you. Israel's choice by God is something unique that we, we not only are not upset about or jealous of, we are grateful for because we understand that it was a preparation for all the peoples of God, all the nations of God, to enter into his kingdom. It was a preparation for the Christ. St. Paul says, if their fall has proved a great gain for the whole world, so if the fall of Israel, if the loss of Israel has proved such a great gain for the rest of the world, how much greater a gain will come to them when all things are restored? There's a very great gain, not only for themselves, but the gain is the whole world. It's the whole heavenly kingdom. It's the gain of all peoples. That everyone is saved and loved by God. That is all who will accept the gift of salvation. That's why he says he's glad he is apostle to the Gentiles. He said, I take pride in this work of service, and I want it to be the means of rousing to envy the people who are my own flesh and blood, so that I might assist in saving some of them. He says, I'm not going to stop proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Yes, I know it rouses my brothers and sisters to jealousy. But he says, for this very reason, I am going to continue proclaiming it in the hope that some of them will finally hear. He speaks of the olive tree. Now Israel was the cultivated olive tree, God's chosen olive tree, beautiful olive tree. And Eventually, this tree, some of the branches of the tree, no longer are producing fruit. So St. Paul says the cultivator does what any good cultivator does. He prunes the dead branches. He prunes those branches not nourished by the Spirit of God that don't have real life in them. They're not capable of producing fruit. So he prunes those branches, and when the branches of the Jews those who would not believe in Christ, are pruned, the cultivator grafts in branches from a wild tree. Now this is actually the reverse of the way cultivation is usually done. But remember what God says through the prophet Isaiah, your ways are not my ways. My ways are higher than your ways. They're different from your ways. It's just like what God does with choosing the second born over the firstborn. In this case, in natural cultivation, if a cultivator had an incredible tree, why would he take a wild branch, an uncultivated, a rebellious kind of branch, and graft it into a tree that was so good already? He wouldn't do that. Now, he might do the reverse of that, but 
God's tree can't be. Christ is holy. Christ, by taking sinners to himself, does not contaminate himself. The sinners are transformed and made new by the Spirit of God. So St. Paul uses this beautiful example, but he reminds the Gentiles, don't congratulate yourselves because the natural branches were pruned away and you were grafted in their place. Because he said, if you become perverse and rebellious, you can just as easily be pruned away yourself. And also remember that it is easier for God to graft back in branches which are natural to the tree in the first place than to have done the work he did in you by grafting you wild ones into the cultivated olive tree, which is Israel. So as he comes to his conclusion then, he says, part of Israel, now remember, it's not the whole of Israel. When he speaks of Israel, he is speaking of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Because in fact, there were many Jews who did convert to Christianity. The apostles were all Jews. Paul was a Jew, but he says, part of Israel had its mind hardened only, only until the Gentiles have wholly come in. God has allowed and continue to allow the hardening of the hearts and minds of Israel until he fills his house. Do you remember in the parable that Jesus tells about the king who's having the wedding feast? Those who are invited do not come. So he says to his servants, go out to the highways and byways. Go out to the hedge roads and open roads. And he says, and anyone you can find out there, just bring them on in. What he says is, I want my house filled. This is what God is doing. He wants his house filled. Now, those who have been brought in, who have been beggars along the sides of the roads and so on, can they congratulate themselves on being brought in? No, not at all. They just happen to be sitting there as nobodies, so to speak, a non-people. And the servants of the king went out and said, the king wants his house full, so come on in. And they entered. Everything is mercy. So he concludes by saying, until the Gentiles have wholly come in, God is allowing this. That is how Israel will be saved. They are enemies, he says, but for your sake. God has allowed their heart to persist in his hardness for the sake of many. But as regards those who are God's choice, they are still well loved for the sake of their ancestors. God's love for Israel has never changed. It will never change. God's promise to Israel will be fulfilled. This is why the church for 2,000 years has always said we await we await the gathering of all of Israel, of the Jews, into the church. The church tells us that the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment in history. She uses that word suspended, as if to say God is just waiting. Suspended at every moment in history until Israel recognizes Christ as Savior. It's very beautiful. And we pray it every Good Friday in our liturgy. We have a prayer for our beloved Jewish brothers and sisters according to the promise. So, God has imprisoned all human beings, St. Paul says, in disobedience, only to show mercy to them all. At one time he showed mercy to Israel. He allowed the disobedience of the Gentiles. He showed mercy to Israel. Now he is allowing the disobedience of Israel to show mercy to the whole world. 
in the end, it is all about God's mercy. It is all about his love. It is all about his salvation. So we understand then St. Paul's profound words, how he ends chapter 11 when he says, how deep, how unfathomable are the riches and knowledge and wisdom of God. How inscrutable his judgments, how unsearchable his ways. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been his counselor? In other words, who can claim to understand what God does and how he works? We cannot. As he says to the potter, tell that pot, how can you question what the hands of the potter is doing you, who are one among so many? St. Paul continues, who has given God anything so that we can expect a return? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be all glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Romans chapter 12 through chapter 16 which include the following three topics. Life in Christ is true spiritual worship. Second, the strong must bear with the weak. And third, the Spirit is drawing all nations to Christ. Knowing the Scripture's Bible study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scripture's program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his bride, the Church.